Networking is the art of laughing a little longer and louder than necessary at the jokes of the person whose patronage you seek, of standing silently by the shoulder when they are making a nonsensical argument, of hanging around just in case they need an extra pint, of strategically making sure you're in the same place as them on holiday. It is the least dignified behaviour I can imagine, but I will see the boys carry it out with such ease that it appears to be genetic. I think a great deal about the English concept of fair play, the idea that there are some things that are simply not done. The older I get, the more I wonder how much of that concept was created to keep people of a certain social class in their place. I look at the most confident people in my year and I realize that the greatest gift that has been bestowed upon them is that of shamelessness. Shamelessness is the superpower of a certain section of the English upper classes. They don't learn shamelessness at Eton, but this is where they perfect it. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu, and that was an extract from one of them, the latest book by my guest, Musa Kwonga. An alumnus of Eton and Oxford, Musa abandoned a career in law like me to join the circus. He's a journalist, a musician, one half of the group BBXO, a podcaster with his hugely successful Stadio podcast. He is first and foremost a writer whose publications cover everything from best-selling books and football to poetry anthologies. One of them details his experience of going to Eton College as a black boy, the son of Ugandan refugees. Welcome, Musa. <laughs> the circus. <laughs> <laughs> Swap the corporate circus for the artistic one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Musa, the book feels like a mixture of affection and loathing for Eton. 70-30, I'd say, but still a mixture, isn't it? I would say affection and disappointment, actually. Uh, and I think disappointment is important to stress because I think it's an institution you arrive at with the highest ideals in all senses. And then it's only, it's the kind of institution you actually fully understand in retrospect, because so many people go from that world and do things that end up making them quite prominent in the public eye. Mm. And it's almost where you're assessing with a long view, what have we gone on and done? And you look at some of the biggest ambassadors of that institution, you know, the most visible, and you're like... I'm not so sure that I'm proud. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, it feels incredibly irrelevant, seeing as the UK is currently run by someone who took precisely the same Eton College Oxford route as you. And that is the the second such prime minister we've had in a decade. Right, right, yeah. And I think at a certain point, if you're producing leaders from school and, you know, you've put statues of them in your, like, you know, your main, your main halls, you have to ask, well, what are we celebrating? Yeah. We're proud to produce leaders, but what kind of leaders are we producing? If indeed we should be producing them, you know, that's a question too. I know this will sound weird, but it seemed to me a little bit like um, the origin stories of a superhero in a way that, you know, you're, you're bitten by this radioactive spider that uh, gives you loads of superpowers, but also poisons you you know gives you gives you loads of stuff you don't want. okay first of all first of all i'm not a superhero and my exes will tell you i'm certainly not one of those so <laughs> no no but i think what it is it's um i think it for me it felt like a reckoning really because 
all these things have happened in the UK socially, politically, and so many people that I would have attended school with or the generation before attending my school have mm. been the architects of those things. And at some point, if we're going to get anywhere as a society, you have to almost critique where you stand within that, Yeah, what you're willing to say about it. None of us should be uh, judged by how our exes see us, and I'm, I feel very strongly about this. Um, <laughs> you, you say that this educational route works really hard at keeping pupils from never, ever coming into contact with the real world, in a way. At some point, I think you write that instead of going on a gap year to India, mm. you suggest that they would learn more about the world by getting off the train 20 minutes early. That's right. But the scary thing is, it's not the system necessarily. With all systems, it's not always a conscious thing. It's, it's by default. Mm. Like this school is one part of like an architecture that keeps people detached from a reality, right? And by the mm. time they come into contact, they kind that reality that's too late. So for example, you had Ian Duncan Smith, who didn't attend Deaton, but he's part of a summer dynamic. Ian Duncan Smith, after he was Conservative Party leader, went around the country and declared himself shocked by levels of poverty. And I was like, what were you doing running for office, the highest office, without being conscious of what's happening <laughs> in your own country? And so the insidious thing about some systems is that like, by default, they're keeping you isolated. And all you have to do is just travel on the same tracks. But here's what I'm interested in. Is this detachment a byproduct of grooming people for power? Or is it a precondition? Is there a philosophical point where the school basically feels we need to produce slightly heartless, detached people because they make better leaders? This is the thing. I don't think a lot of this stuff is just it's just machinery, right? So no one's sitting there going, mm. we must make these people detached in order that they can make hard choices in the world to come. It's not, I don't think it's a conscious thing like that. It's the same mm. way that, you know, that architecture was put in place how many hundreds of years ago, right? And now people just continue enacting it, traveling through it. And that's why it needs critique because if it doesn't get critique, it just carry, the machinery just carries on. Yeah. And it's been there for so long. If you look at like, um, you look at the kind of the halls of the school and you've got the names of all the, the boys that died in the first world war. And then you're associating that school with sacrifice and duty, but no one actually says to you, Oh, we're the kind of people that sacrifice so many in the war. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's much more, um, the wheels are already been in motion for so long. Hmm. There's almost a kind of institutional inertia, if that makes sense. Mm. No, no, that makes complete sense. You, you essentially diagnose sort of the pathology of different types without right. without setting out to but that's that's how the book felt you know that i was examining all these different little groups and you're very very clever in that you never name people which puts me in the position of trying to think hmm was this ex minister <laughs> was that this person now how does johnson's pathology differ from Cameron's? Well, first of all, the pathology thing is absolutely deliberate. And that's why I don't name names, partly because we were boys then and people have the right to kind of grow and develop and learn. But also, I did it because I wanted people to be able to understand types of character they were seeing and be like, ah, oh, that person reminds me of that person and so on. So it, I mean, I didn't know Cameron, I don't know Johnson, I don't know these people, but there's a certain intellectual incuriosity, maybe, or a lack of curiosity about the world you could describe to Cameron. President Obama talks about that. And then you talk about the shamelessness of someone like a Boris Johnson, who 
is almost like somebody who does these outrageous things and then dares people to defy him, right? Mm. But in an environment mm. like mine or at school, people don't really defy those characters. They laugh it off or they kind of like, go, oh my gosh, isn't he terrible? Or they roll their eyes. But people don't really actually confront yeah. characters like that. And of course, what happens is the less the character that's confronted, the more the ego builds momentum. And then by the time people in the outside world are critiquing them, a lot of that is unstoppable. Mm. It becomes your shtick, doesn't it? It does, but then people buy into it. The thing is, yeah. a shtick has to become a thing that people buy into. So you can't develop certain types of shtick mm. without people being complicit. It needs, for shtick to work, people have to sit there and be like, oh, isn't he hilarious? But what if people actually stopped and said, no, that's just terrible all the time? And everyone said that. And not just in a kind of eye-rolling way, but genuine, Yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't stand for it. That's unserious. You also identify very elegantly, I thought, if obliquely, the origins of Brexit. You you describe how this place and places like it, which are by all measures magnificent at teaching stuff, are somehow mysteriously shite at teaching the history of empire, how it leaves one with a sense of absolute superiority mixed with victimhood, you know, how Britain is simultaneously unbeatable and underdog, triumphing over external threats while also the victim. Well, that's Brexit all over, isn't it? Of course it is. Of course it is. Look, it's easier to name all six of Henry VIII's wives than it is to name the six biggest colonial massacres under the British Empire, right? Mm. But that is a thing. If you're designing a syllabus for a school, that's a pretty glaring omission right? That's a pretty glaring omission. Like, I learned more about the scramble for Africa, in quotes, from a book that I picked up after leaving than I did while I was at school. You know, Africa, (laughs) the exploitation of Africa is a pretty big root or basis of the wealth of a lot of people in the UK and specifically England. Well, Mm. England and Scotland in particular. So these are big omissions, Alex, you know? Yes. And And they're so big. At some level, they're like, well, they're willful. They must be willful. Britain is not alone in this. I, I I remember being taught Greek history, and yeah. I remember there was a bit of the history book that said, and the next 10 years involved an episode that is better forgotten. Better forgotten, um, <laughs> yes. And I thought, how really weird. And it was decades later that I looked into it that I realized that, you know, we had started basically something that ended with Greeks in uh, Asia Minor being slaughtered, that we were the ones that tried to invade. And and I bet you if you ask 99% of Greeks, they don't know that because our history books literally just skip over it. I'm interested in the 1% of Greeks that know what happened and then talk about it behind each other's backs. So there was one guy <laughs> at school in particular from a family that had carried out all manner of colonial massacres and people talked about it. They were like, oh, do you know who that is? You know who that guy is related to? Mm. Like it was known. It was absolutely known. So it was like, there's this complicity. I thought to myself, how funny that at the center of like the British Empire, where pride and empire, where actually people, if you're proud about something, you talk about all its aspects, right? Like if I've won a gold medal, I'll tell you about my training regime. I'll tell you about where I went running, how I got my my breath used to running at altitude. I'll tell you about everything I did to win that gold medal. And I'm like, hang on a minute. You're just presenting the gold the gold medal and no, another training regime, not telling us who trained you. Like, it's so interesting. It's like, here's the British Empire, but like mm. no one, don't question where it came from. It's just the empire. I'm like, how, how curious. Yeah. How curious. You write very movingly about 
the sort of indelible, almost genetic mark that is left on the children of refugees uh, and how you are conditioned to make yourself invisible. This is something I regularly hear from Jewish friends, by the way. That's interesting. But when you're black at Eton, it's impossible to be invisible, isn't it? Well, that's the thing about race or the construct of race, that the choice you have as a black person in the environment that is mostly white, you're going to be visible, right? You're just going to be visible. So you may as well just try to excel because if you excel, then people will be like, okay, we can notice this guy, but he's doing well. That's fine. And I was having a chat with a friend the other day and I said, the one thing you cannot afford to be as a black person in a mostly white space is you can't afford to be naive and you can't afford to move slow. Mm. And when I say slow, I don't mean in the kind of... Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. In an in in abler sense. I mean, in terms of momentum, I think you need to be dynamic you need to, you need to yeah yeah exactly thank you that's that's the, that's a better word you need to be dynamic actually and i think so many of us that go to environments like this and schools like this just need to be dynamic mm. are you still trying to be invisible in some ways <laughs> that's yeah I, re- I read a recent <laughs> i read a recent interview in which you complained that even in the berlin underground the seat next to you is almost always empty uh, my thought was good on him he's learned to be visible well i think i try to be um i try to just live a quiet life but i don't think that's my that's not my fate is it <laughs> <laughs> it's not worked out well so far you also make what I what I thought was a, a profound observation that Eton suited you very well because it's a place which throws you from one competition to the next, constantly pushing you, and that absolutely suits the immigrant frame of mind. I think you describe it as a relay race where your parents pass you the baton and you don't question, you just start running. Right. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And I think a school like that, it is intellectually very stimulating because every two weeks you're being tested against other members of your class in each subject. You know, you're playing sport regularly. You can do art, you can do journalism. Like there's so many things to get your kind of neurons firing. And it's, mm. you know, that part of it is very exhilarating, to be honest, especially at that point of your life where your brain is just absorbing yeah. everything. And that is the immigrant experience. You know, you arrive in a new country and it is like... It's like the IMAX experience. You've got to get to grips with everything, new language, yeah. new culture, new way of being, all of that. Yeah, similar vibe, I think. At the same time, w- what is clearly weaved through the book, something that you are conscious of now, I'm not sure how conscious you were of it then, was that you felt constantly like you represented all black people. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That is a huge thing. You know, that's a really important thing. Um, I was quite conscious of it going there. And then you go there and you realize a lot of, you know, for example, you have Prince Harry. So Prince Harry was four years, I think he's four years younger than me. So he was, I think he was below me at school, right? Like four years younger than me at school. And Prince Harry said that he only really like engaged or discovered the issue of racism in a great depth when he married his now wife, right? Yeah. And to me that, that was like, wow, see, someone could be four years younger, you, same school as you and didn't engage with racism as an issue. That's the level. Like a lot of these people didn't have black friends. Yeah. A lot of them didn't know black people, hadn't engaged with black people on a level which they would regard as an equal level, right? So you felt like you were there kind of like showing them actually what black people were like, which is a ridiculous yeah. pressure for someone to place themselves, but that's how it felt. So anything you did would reflect badly, not just on you, but on effectively your entire race. 
but we have the thing is that's of course once you get out into the world you realize that's how black people are viewed anyway like yeah. one black person does something oh my goodness oh cultural poverty oh my goodness look at their inherent nature look at that you know that's a thing that happens anyway to black people but at a school like that you're really conscious of how you're perceived the positive aspect of this is something you carry into your other book in the end it was all about love you yep. describe very touchingly returning to your father's grave after 35 years and how suddenly you have this revelation that you have honored him yep. by taking his name everywhere and how every time someone hears your name or sees your name they can think here goes northern uganda that's exactly it and that's really important to represent and i think actually in retrospect being rooted so strongly in uganda through my parents helped me it helped tether me at school mm. because i think it's a school where you can become a bit of a gatsby if you're you go to a school like that and it's so grand and the society that surrounds it is so grand if you go there being untethered to who you kind of are it's easy to get lost in grandeur it's easy mm. to get lost in that class system and to think you're better than people but i was always anchored in this is my family this is the region we're from this is what it's about and this school is one part of my existence but it's not the kind of sum total because it's it's very easy to get lost in that world i think yeah very easy yeah um i don't know how to describe in the end it was all about love i came up with internal travel log um, oh i like that i, I like that yeah if that makes <laughs> any sense it's it's sort of your first couple of years as a brexit refugee almost Well actually funny enough it kind of preempted that it was 2 years it was just before right 2 years before because i felt the conversation about immigration in the uk was going in a bad direction so i left right and i was yeah right yeah i mean that's a huge change right how has piling pandemics and lockdowns of, on on top of that been for you <laughs> to be honest i'm a writer in a podcast so it's kind of perfect i just <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't i don't see anyone anyway so it's <laughs> no man i you know i i write too and i talk to a lot of people who write for a living and and many of them say that actually being able to choose when you do have some contact and when you do go out and get some stimulation yeah was actually very key to having productive quiet time at home um and so many people i know struggle just having quiet time at home I've but you obviously lucky, relish <laughs> relish i've been very lucky though alex because i live in a place with beautiful natural light i live 10 minutes walk from a really busy part of town so when i was go for a wander so i can be around people and dynamism if i need to wander out to some woodland or some of that nearby so mm. I'm quite fortunate. Also, I have a thing of trying to perfect a new dish every six months, and so I tend to like lose myself <laughs> in food or food, music, or television. It so takes I'm, I'm okay. you six months to perfect a dish. <laughs> I, I I think I've discovered your Achilles heel. Um, all masters of the craft, like you. Listen, know. has has sharing stuff been a privilege? In the most recent episode of your football podcast, Stadio. Mm. You tell the world that you had a psychedelic experience chopping onions with 3D glasses on, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it occurs to me that that <laughs> that's a sort of therapy, is is it not? Maybe that's why we've survived quite well. Well, the podcast has really helped. Actually, shout out to Ryan Hunt, who I do Stadio with, uh, my co-host and a brilliant human being. Um, a lot of people have written to us saying how Stadio really helps them because it comes out twice a week. And it punctuates their week, so we try to keep it quite fun, quite light, quite interactive. 
and you know we get emails i'm sure it's the same with the bunk you get emails from all over the place going thank you for this thank you for that so we try to make it almost the you know a conversation that you enjoy eavesdropping on yeah. and you'd be welcome to join in any time so i think that's that has certainly helped me on a personal level having having that i i couldn't help but draw a small parallel between the two books in one of them you talk about how the accent bestowed on you by Eton, the sort mm. of pontification, mm. is one of the biggest advantages for a person of color trying to fit in. Yet by yeah. emigrating to Berlin, you have given that largely up. Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? Had you thought about that? Was that something you did consciously? You Because you've sort of gone into an environment where now your poshness is no, no longer an issue. I kind of like that, though. Like, if you look at the, the career paths I've taken, where, you know, performance, poetry, and all the rest of it, those are worlds where there's actually sometimes an inherent suspicion towards someone with education like mine. So actually, one of my friends in the poetry scene said, actually, for the first two years, I was really wary of you, mm. because of people from places like yours. And I kind of, I kind of liked the idea of stripping that away and going into a world where I'd have to earn it. And being here as well, you know, being in Berlin, it's been incredible to be living in the heart of Europe. And it was worth it for that. And like, you know, the ignorance, the prejudice that you get from some places, it's outweighed by the quality of the people you meet or the quality mm. of the friends you make. And, you know, I met astonishing friends here. I like that, Alex. I like being free of that gravitational pull, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. I couldn't let you go without talking a tiny <laughs> bit yeah. of football. Yes. Um, this has been a fucking weird season, hasn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'd think that being locked in the house... I would, you know, and watching more stuff all the time, I would be more drawn into it. But I find myself less interested in this season than before, and I don't know why. I think maybe it's the um, the best football matches on TV in particular. They're a conversation between the viewer, the players, and the crowd, right? Yeah. And one of those vital elements is missing. So you're kind of missing out on the call and response that you get. And you know, I was watching, um, re-watching some old uh, Spain games from that amazing run they went on and they won three international tournaments in a row. The, the 2008 uh, Euros, then the World Cup, then the 2012. And the impact of the crowd, that dynamic of the crowd, it gives you a kind of nostalgia because you think, my goodness, like, this is stunning art. This is, having an empty football stadium is like, it's like locking the Sistine Chapel and not allowing someone to witness the beauty on the ceiling, right? Mm. It's like that. And so I think that sense of loss, every time we watch football on TV with empty stadiums, we're reminded of that sense of loss to an extent. I mean, I, I still love watching football. I still love the fact we've got live football on, but I do feel that loss every time I watch it. Yeah. I don't know. I just, you know, I, I used to go a lot to live matches as well, and I just find it really hard to get into it, I guess, when yeah. I can't supplement it by going to the occasional match. It feels somehow further away from me. Um, since the race for winning the Premier League is pretty dull at the moment with Man City 14 points ahead, mm. um, let me ask you the second most important question in football. <laughs> will Spurs make it into the Champions League places? Come on. I don't think they will. Oh. I don't think they will. I don't think they will because the teams they're competing against have a greater sense of harmony and Spurs don't have that direction. I think leaving the Europa League, although it gives them more time to relax and regenerate, recuperate, I I just think they're sunk again, unfortunately. Like a knife to the heart. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to deliver it. It had to be me. <laughs> 
Musa, our time, alas, has vanished all too quickly. Thank you for your time and for your thoughts. Thank you for yours. Thank you. And with all my heart, genuinely, for championing light in a time of darkness. So kind of you. Thanks, Alex. And also, just before I go, keep up the great work yourself. Much appreciated. And always notice it. Thank you. Musa Kwanga's one of them, and in the end, it was all about love, are both out now. And listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.